think about, and really all we're doing, I think, for these last three weeks, finishing up today, is helping us think about what a church is and helping us to think about how we lived out out among ourselves. One thing I thought about even sitting and listening and worshiping myself is a church is an unruly thing. It's a little bit of an unruly thing because it's you, right? It's me, and we're all different, and we're trying to respond to God as we live our lives out, but we're doing it also in connection with other people, so it feels unruly sometimes too. But let's look at the scripture here, and then we're just going to talk about the second part of a covenant that is already in the new member uh, curriculum that has been taught here for a long time with just a few tweaks that, that are helpful, I think, that we're asking you to vote on. Uh, so it helps you to be informed about what you're voting on. And in Ephesians chapter number 4, uh, beginning there with verse 4, the Bible says, There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, whenever, uh, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And, of course, this is uh, speaking of Christ. Christ ascended, and when he ascended, he gave us grace gifts that we'll talk about. Now, this he ascended, what does it mean? But he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And depending on your thoughts about this, really what I think it's saying is he came to earth. He had a life as a human. He descended from heaven first. He came here to be with you and I to make our salvation possible but then he rose and he ascended back into heaven he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things and he himself gave some to be apostles some prophets some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the son of God to a perfect man and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. All right, co-pilot, I'll take over and advance things uh, uh, this morning. As we look at the, the covenant, the, we talked about last week, and I'll show you in review the first two parts of it that we examined before. But in a covenant, it is, is an agreement. It's vows, it's promises, it's commitments that people make among one, one another. In Scripture, you find many examples of covenants that God made with his people, beginning uh, as early as Noah. There's a covenant. We talked about the fact that God said, I destroyed the world with water. I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to fix a rainbow in the sky as an evidence of the fact that I'll never destroy the entire world with the flood again. And then with Abraham, God told Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. 
And then following Abraham, Moses, God gave a covenant. In fact, the old covenant came through Moses on Sinai, and God gave him laws, and God gave him regulations for community so that they could be, the people of Israel, a holy people of God. And so we see the existence of covenants in the Old Testament, how God then spoke to David and promised David, there, there will be a descendant of yours to sit on the throne of Israel forever. And so David became in the line of Messiah. And in Jesus, that promise that God made to Abraham found its fulfillment. But one thing we notice about the covenants in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is that they really were an expression for the people of futility. Because uh, time and time again, as they pursued God, they found in themselves disappointing, uh, like coming short of what the expectations expressed in the covenant were. Uh, covenants were the covenants were often expressed as if then propositions. If you do this, then I'll do that. But often the weakness in the covenant was on behalf of the people. Right? The then. Uh, part didn't happen for them because the if part wasn't carried out through their own life. And so they ended up uh, not only in futility but in judgment and ultimately we know in exile that the nation of Israel in two sections were carted off into captivity. First the northern kingdom went into captivity under the Assyrians and then later on the Babylonians came and took away the southern kingdom of Israel so that they experienced exile from the land of promise. And it looked like disaster was there for them. But then we know they returned to the land, never again accomplishing the previous grandeur. They watched the history of the world uh, go by, and they saw that God raised up the Babylonians, the Assyrians first. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Medians, Macedonia, Greek. And then during their time, in the biblical time, Rome. All of these players on the world stage, but not Israel again. And so where was God's promise for them? Where, where was the fulfillment of the, these expectations that had come to them? Well, we know that their failure was predictable, and it just highlighted the need that something, uh, for something that everybody was missing. Everybody was missing the same thing. That was the capacity for perfection through religion. Nobody has that. No one has the capacity for perfection through religion. That's the big human problem advancing through history. And so I'm, uh, I've read this illustration about C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford uh, professor and writer, many of us have read either Chronicles of Narnia or like the first great Christian book I ever read was uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. But it's, it's told that he wandered into a group discussion about world religions. And the, the discussion was, well, what is the significant contribution of Christianity to world religions? And they were talking this, and uh, C.S. Lewis says, well, that's easy. It's grace. He says grace is the significant contribution of Christianity to world religions. And grace is the fulfillment of the promise in the new covenant. The new covenant was God saying to Israel that I'm going to bless the whole world through you, through this nation. And, of course, that promise centered in 
the Messiah. I always loved um, studying in Romans when you get to chapter 3, verse 21. It says, it's really the turning point of that epistle. It says, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, has appeared. The righteousness which is through faith in Jesus Christ. So that he, it, it's a, one of those scriptures that answers itself about, you would say, well, what's the righteousness of God apart from the law? The understanding that people had was religion is basically exemplary uh, conduct through my life. That's what religion was. It was performance and doing. But God says, no, now the righteousness of God apart from the law has appeared, the righteousness which is through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says justification, righteousness, cleansing come to us through faith in Jesus That's the righteousness of God that appeared for us apart from the law. Uh, And it speaks to uh, this impossible ideal of a perfect religious scorecard. When you think about your life, you know you don't have that, right? You've missed some Sundays. You've acted in anger. You've done deceitful things. I think about being a little kid. What a little liar I was at times as a little kid. A little thief at times. I'm like, that's so embarrassing to think about how I was as a little kid and how, you know, it's like if I'm trying to look to a perfect religious scorecard, it's not available to me. God knows that, and what God did for us was to give us a gift in someone who was perfect, who took our place and who died in our place on a cross and was raised from the dead, signaling that your justification has occurred. And so when we talk about covenants and ideals and promises, grace is at the center. Grace, the reality that we're part of a community that is composed of people just like you. What what do you know about yourself when you're by yourself? What do you know about yourself? You know your imperfection. You might not trumpet it to the world, but you know it. I do too. I know that what is true about me is that I'm lacking in something important and God brought it to me. So when we talk about covenants, we are uh, still talking about something that exists in the context of the grace of God, in the grace of God. So previously this was what we talked about last week, and I'm not going to talk about it any at all other than to say this. We talked about protecting the unity of the church, and we expounded on that. We talked about sharing in the spiritual responsibilities of of the church, and we expounded on that. If you want to listen, the uh, messages are on the webpage or on the app, uh, on Spotify. And I would encourage you to because I think they help us. They help us to uh, think through this idea of belonging to each other. Belonging to each other and commitment. These are the realities that we're really working through. And so we're going to talk about the remaining part of the covenant that we are asking you to affirm uh, as you vote as a member today. So some of the aspects of that, the other there are two that we'll talk about and unpack the uh, bullet points that are beneath those as they've been presented in the past to the church. And one of them says, I will serve in the ministry of the church according to the Holy Spirit. And so we think about the, um, our part. What's my part? Who am I in the body? You know, am I an ear or an eyeball or an elbow? <laughs> what is it that God through my life is bringing to the rest of the congregation? 
And so when we realize what the Bible teaches, one thing it says about us, this is, we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10, that he gave gifts to men. You, you are gifted by God if the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you. You have spiritual gifts, the uh, ideas in Scripture uh, that Christ gave gifts to people. And when we think about what spiritual gifts are, they are different than talents. Because a spiritual gift is how uh, the Spirit of God intends to build up. The Scripture uses the word edify, strengthen the church. And so God gave gifts to people, teachers, administrators, uh, evangelists it talked about in the in the passage and then there are a host of ways helps you know this isn't a message about spiritual gifts but the truth is that people have been gifted by God to do different things for his glory and and so that the church his body is strengthened so you have gifts from God for as I came into uh, uh, to be a part of a local congregation Frankie and I I was asked to teach after not probably long enough, honestly. They, uh, I was teaching a young adult Sunday school class, and I would ask Frankie to critique me, and she's honest, and she would critique me. She's like, you clear your voice too, or your throat too much, and you say, uh, uh, too much. And I'm like, okay, well, thank you, I guess. <laughs> you know. But she, she loved me. She was helpful uh, to me, and... But after a while, it became obvious that, I, I guess, now I'm not trying to be uh, vain in saying so, but that God had called me to teach. He had called me to speak in front of people and to uh, talk, talk through biblical truths. At least others have affirmed that on my journey up to now, okay? so But everybody's got some gift that God has given to them, and it may not be a platform kind of issue. It may be helps where you're... You like menial things give you a sense of satisfaction and purpose. And you you show up and you move, like we did earlier, we moved tables and set up chairs and we did those kinds of things. And But there are all kinds of tasks that the Spirit empowers in the church. And those are, when we talk about spiritual gifts, there are varieties of gifts, the Bible says. But it's the same Spirit who's given them all in 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Talents are different than spiritual gifts. You say, how? How are they different? Because talents can be used in the world or in the church. Uh, uh, we've got like lots of talented people that are on the platform every week. They could just as easily be pl- playing in a bar somewhere. You know, It's like, what do you do with the talent that you have that determines whether or not it has to do with the strengthening and the building up of the body of Christ? So there are lots of talented people. The church needs their creativity. The church needs their artistry. The church needs for them to show up with that and, and to use it so that God is glorified and seen through their talents. But talents are different in that sense than spiritual gifts as we would understand them. But the abilities that God gives to people are for his glory and the strengthening of the church. And so he created us, imparts gifts to us, and when we con- uh, contribute our gifts and talents to God's kingdom, here's what happens. We live out his calling. I want to live out God's calling. I don't want to spend my however many years I get here on this earth spinning my wheels, doing what I want. But when I answer God's call, then I'm living out his purpose and his calling for me 
in, in my life, and so are you. When we answer and live out this uh, and serve in the area of our giftedness and talents in churches, then we strengthen the church itself. You're a part of the strengthening of the church. And sometimes churches are weakened because of our uh, unwillingness to participate and to bring what God has given to us into the church life and, and to be a part of, his, of the ministry that occurs in local churches. And I believe local churches are in God's heart for the blessing of the world. When we use our spiritual gifts and our talents, we push back the darkness. You know, we think about what a dark place the world is sometimes. And what does Christ say about us? You are what? You are the light of the world. You're the light of the world. So when we show up and we answer God's call and fulfill the uh, calling in, in our lives with, in the area of our uh, ministry, we help push back darkness. We share in ministry. We, we take our part. And, you know, we've, Jonathan said this earlier, many hands make light work. You know, if, we, if the church is to flourish, and I think flourishing is his pur- purpose, then it, it flourishes when more and more people are being involved in or answering God's call and saying yes to him and being faithful. What, what else happens? We reduce burnout in others. You know, sometimes uh, people get burnout. They, get, they begin to struggle because they think, man, I'm just carrying too much. I can't do any more than I'm doing currently. And so when you answer God yes, you give God your yes, then others are not unduly required to probably do more than God wants them doing. Because I, I really, you know, came to see this a long time ago, then I heard other people affirm it, but... We should only be committed to what our spiritual life can support. You know, sometimes like we're trying to do so much more, and really you can't do more than what your prayer life and your margin will permit. Now, sometimes that gets into the question of where are my priorities? Are my priorities correct? You know, if my priorities aren't correct, then I need some alignment myself in obeying Christ. But when... People could do things that they don't do. They increase the burden for others, and it causes burnout. If we answer the call uh, of how Christ has given us gifts and talents, we are obedient to Christ. And that's what it means to be a disciple, is to be obedient to Jesus. We fulfill his purpose in creating us. And I always love this verse and have cited it often. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. That's such a beautiful, beautiful verse. You are his workmanship. God crafted us individually, uniquely. He made you. He's happy with what he did in you. He gave you this uh, uh, background and experience and some things that you wouldn't want to repeat or do again, God included in your life, and he's shaping you, and he made you a masterpiece. That's what the verse says. You're his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, it says that he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So whatever it is that God's made you, he didn't do it so that we could, it would lay there latent. He wants us to be useful and active in serving him. Then also by being equipped by my leaders to serve is what the covenant says. 
This is the agreement that we make with one another when we become a member of a congregation. While leaders should do absolutely anything that they ask others to do, if they try to do everything all by themselves, it is self-defeating. It's limiting. And the, the reason is obvious is because you know people I don't know. Your life intersects with humans. Mine, do, mine doesn't. So I'm limited just by that, and anybody would be. And so we think about the leaders that God gives. You know, uh, in the past, before I was called into ministry, I did children's church with my sister. I remember, like, when we were really early into the experience we were having in church life. You know, I'd go do stuff, the little kid stuff. During church, while other people were doing church, we dismissed out of church and, you know, went and did that. And so I'd like to think there's nothing I would ask you to do that I wouldn't do too if I were able to do it. And that's what leadership should be, moving chairs or whatever is required. You get in there and you do it too. But if only the leaders are doing it, it's, it's uh, the key to failure. For one simple reason, because the Christian faith is an as-you-are-going faith. That's what Jesus said. He says, as you go into the world, you make disciples. Not just me. You know, not just the other elders or the student pastor, Cody, or, you know, all of us do that. As we're going into the world, we are involved in the making of disciples and followers of Jesus. And so everybody gets in on what God is trying to get done through the local church in in our own unique sphere and with the people that you know the people that know you god uses your your life and your your talent and ability and we saw this passage earlier but it's this is what god did he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work each part it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. That's God's ideal about us and ha- what we're like together. He says, as you do your part, it strengthens that other person. You have a part in the life. Of, we're connected. This is something we talk about all the time. And if that connection is what it's intended to be, then we flourish. You're, you're used by God. You bless me. I bless you. That's, this is what God intends. So that love characterizes it all. You know, what we experience among each other is we're keeping on moving toward the expression of love, as difficult as that is. That's so hard. I wish it was easier. But aren't all the really worthwhile things difficult? Yeah, of course they are. Anything worthwhile in our life, we find it's always going to be difficult. But this is how God pictures the church, each part a person contributing from their own life in the unique way that God has fashioned them and made them. And then also in the covenant, it talks about that uh, we do this by, I serve in the ministry of the local church, by developing a servant's heart. This is a covenant that existed before it came to this church. So the, I like that. I like that others found, hey, this speaks truth that we find in Scripture. How do we know that it's God's will for us to have a servant's heart? Because we see it in Jesus, right? Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ, who even though he existed as as God, he didn't consider his authority as God 
to be something, his rights to be something he wouldn't set aside to come and be a servant. That's what Philippians chapter 2 says. He did that. He came as a servant. He emptied himself of the privileges that he had. He didn't stop being God. He was still God. But he came here and he clothed himself in flesh as a human. And it says he became a servant, obedient to the point of death on a cross. So how do I know that God wants me to be a servant? Because God wants me to be like Jesus. And Jesus was a servant. So we develop a servant heart to be like Christ. Jesus on the, and we know this, but the night before or around the last uh, couple of days that he was on earth, he stooped, he clothed himself as a, uh, the most menial household servant, and he washed the feet of people. He washed their feet. And when we stoop to serve, we are most like Jesus. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ, the Scripture says, that we're to be servants. So then the uh, next to last, the last part of the covenant, as it's expressed, that uh, it says, I will support the testimony of the church. And then how do we do that? Well, by attending faithfully is an aspect of that. So, faithful attendance, Hebrews 10.25, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves to, uh, together as the manner of some is, but keep coming together in order to encourage each other toward love and good works. So much the more as you see the day approaching. Even more and more as you see the day approaching. Not even less and less. That's not what it says. It says more and more that we come together. Okay, when you assess threats to uh, Christianity, in the world that you know people would have all kinds of ideas i would say one of the biggest threats to christian community in our times is lukewarm participation or nominal church membership somebody else said nominal and i thought i've used that word forever let me look up what it means nominal means existing in name only that's one of the things that it means nominal existing in name only or far below the real value or cost. Boy, both of those are devastating things to apply to church membership. To say, I'm a member in name only, or to say, you know, I have, I would say I'm a member, but I value it incorrectly. Somebody coined that phrase a long time ago, nominal church membership, and I thought, boy, when I read that, it resonates. A church is a gathering. We're talking about what a church is. What is a church? It's a, a gathering. That's what they understood it to be in the first century. They called it ecclesia. We've said this before. Ecclesia. That was the Greek word. They borrowed it from Roman culture. It, had to, it described any public gathering. So it meant people were together. When, so when you think about what the church is, it is people who are together. That's what it means. So that, that's fundamentally the idea that was in... And who else used the word church Jesus, right? In Matthew uh, chapter 18, he talked about... He used the word church when he talked to Peter. He said, on your confession of me as Messiah, I will build my what? Church, my ecclesia, my gathering. So when we think about what a church is, it's a gathering... Koinonia, you've probably heard that word in church before. It meant it's the word for fellowship. It has, it has the idea of holding something in common. So fellowship is a Bible idea about 
Also connecting, sharing. I'm sure we've already talked about these things, really, sharing from my life. Data uh, from places like Pew Research. Pew Research has been studying religious trends for a very long time. They say that faithfulness today means that on average people attend their church's weekly worship gathering once a, a month. That's what faithfulness now means. You know, if somebody asks me, okay, Bobby, you've been in vocational ministry since 1992-ish, which means, you know, I've advanced in years. What's different now? What do you see as being uh, different than when you started? One of the things I would say is the fact that you have to convince people about the significance of regular connection with other Christians, that we it's shifted in such a dramatic way from 30 years ago uh, when we were, you know, just beginning this journey in ministry. And so the the pattern that people have um, started to flesh out, there are all kinds of reasons maybe we could talk about sometime, but it makes the model of ministry that our church is practicing nearly impossible. You know, if we're just being perfectly honest, if we're saying, okay, it takes volunteers to do the things that we try to do, to do the fundamentals, you know, the, of ministry that churches ought to uh, be committed to, our pattern often makes it difficult to, to sustain and practice. And it, it, it leads to some frustration, you know. I'm being honest. I said last week, honesty really ought to be a part of church. It's okay. You know, it's okay for us to tell the truth when we're together. I think we ought to. Jesus said, I am the what? I am the truth, right? Truth is a high value that we hold together. And so when we, we think about where are the threats, how do I assess threats that, uh, well, one of them is the lack of consistency that we have. And what I would consider, if somebody said, what's the most basic expression of what a church is? I would say it's gathering to hear the Bible preached, to pray with other Christians and to practice my faith among them to observe the ordinances that you can't observe. You, if you do observe the ordinances regularly somewhere else in the world, I think you're out of New Testament order. So we come together to observe communion, the Lord's table, to see people baptized as followers of Christ. And, you know, that's the basic fundamental idea of what being part of church is, is that we connect, we gather and we do those things with each other. We hear, we're discipled and we disciple. And we're part of a movement of God in our proximity, in our location. And there's a difference in attending a church service occasionally and participating in the life of a local church in a meaningful way. They're not the same thing. We participate in the life of the local church in a meaningful way by graduating on to some other behaviors other than just coming and showing up. So, we, uh, we say amen or oh me. That's what my, some of my friends say. But how do, we, how do we support the testimony of local church? By living a godly life is an aspect of it. Living a godly life. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, Philippians 1.27 says. Let your conduct be worthy. We're living testimonies of the grace of Christ. God's grace is transformational. What we do and are affects each other. We have a corporate or a collective testimony. That's what the covenant speaks to. 
when we agree to become members of a local congregation, we promise each other that I will live a life that is not perfect but above reproach. Because you're not going to go out from here and live a perfect life. But you can go out from here and live a life that's above reproach. You can live a life that is consistent with the confession of your your confession of, in Christ. And so when the, the scripture says we're, we are uh, to let our conduct be worthy of the gospel, this is the ground it's covering, that we're part of each other. Because I'm part of you, what you do affects me and what I do affects you. Part of our commitment in covenanting together is to honor Christ in our collective testimony. Churches have testimonies. Churches have reputations. Churches have names. Read Revelations, uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Jesus says to all, there are seven churches in Asia Minor. This refrain is in every single uh, conversation Jesus had to every single church. He said, I know your works. I know your works. That's what he says to all of them. What does he mean, their works? He says, I know who you are together and what you're about. I know you. I know your works. Sometimes he commended them. But he said to some of them, you're lukewarm. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were hot or cold, but because you're not, basically in the vernacular, he says, you make me sick. But he says, I know your works. Now, we may be in that group that he commends, and he says kind things to. To one of the churches, he says, you live where Satan's throne is, and yet you've not denied my name. They were commended. But to all of them, he said this, I know your works. I know what you're like. I know your testimony. I know your reputation. And so we live out our faith in connection to one another. We have a collective name, reputation. I don't know what it is. He encountered people who, as who they were in their collective identity. Let me ask you a question. Do you think of yourself that deeply connected to a group of other people? When you think about who you are, do you think of yourself that deeply connected to a group of other people that you would say, whatever I am, they are too. Whatever I do, it reflects on them. Because that's what the scripture teaches about who we are. So we, we think of, of a covenant, but we live this out together. Also, we support the ministry of the church by supporting the ministry of the church financially. And the, uh, I always love Psalm 24, verse 1, says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof is the King James. The earth is the Lord's and everything. That means God owns everything. Even all the stuff that's in my garage that I should get rid of half of it. God owns all of it. If I have a Christian understanding. It belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the Bible says. God, here's how stewardship should look in the life of a maturing Christian. We would say, God owns it and I manage it. I'm a steward of it. I'm a manager of God's possessions. And so one day there's an accounting for, uh, 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 I forget where the reference is, 
but the scripture says uh, it's required among stewards that one be found faithful. In other words, there's an accounting one day. God's going to hold us accountable for how we managed his stuff. It's his stuff, not ours. And so everything we have is only ours for a little while. You've heard this before. You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? That's not how it works. uh, We were born with nothing, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and you will go out exactly the same way. You came into this world not clutching anything in your hand. You'll go out of this world not clutching anything in your hand. You will leave it all behind. I like Ecclesiastes how he says, you may leave it to a fool, you know. You don't even know. But it's one thing that's sure is it's not going with you. God owns it. We're to manage it for a little while. Jesus says, don't lay up treasures on earth where, uh, he says, lay up treasures, store your treasures up in heaven where moths can't eat, thieves can't steal it, rust can't corrupt it. For where your treasure is, he says, there your heart will be also. We significantly undergave our budget through the first quarter of this year because we're doing truth-telling. We've already emailed you this information, and I have zero idea, nor will I ever, who gives what. I have no idea. I'm never going to know, and I don't want to know. But I do know that to do ministry the way that we have purposed to do it It requires collective faithfulness from us. So uh, here's a graphic I've posted several times that um, thinking about giving to our local church. This isn't the technical way you do it. We already showed you that. (laughs) These are just the scriptural things that the Bible says about generosity. It says that uh, Christians were instructed to give worshipfully. It's an act of worship when you give like any other act of giving yourself away in worship. We give cheerfully because God loves a cheerful giver, the Bible says. We give sacrificially because God's worth it for us to give sacrificially. We give thankfully. In other words, we don't give grudgingly. We give cheerfully. We give thankfully. And we give equitably. One thing I like about... uh, and I know that different people feel differently about whether tithing is a New Testament idea or not. I do like that it's equitable. I like that when we have a targeted idea about what we're going to give in our life, that 10% is 10%, whether you're making a million dollars or $100,000. Probably a lot of us would say I'd be happy to make either of those you know, amounts. Or $10,000, 10% of it is still the same to uh, sacrifice for anybody. And I do believe when you read the Bible, you will find that it says that you're to give equitably. Equitably. So the sacrifice is shared evenly and by everyone who is part of the, com- the community. All right, I know you're relieved. I'm going to move on to another part of this. I'll support the testimony of the church. This is new in our covenant, and it's old among covenants. It's been around a long time. But it, by uniting with another church as soon as possible, should I move from this place so that I might carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word? Because we, you know, we think about people, they're mobile now. I remember reading a book a while back, uh, Law Scholar, Scholar, I can't remember how you pronounce his name, but a great Christian thinker who talked about like how mobile people are. 
that in the past, people didn't move as frequently as they do now, and they didn't live as far apart from each other as they do, but the highway system came along, and now people will move far away and live far away, and it's more common, and uh, there have been people, in my experience as a pastor, like we had families that moved to Texas, like the key uh, group leader, small group leader in the church that I was pastor of once, moved to Texas to, to work. And I was really brokenhearted. But the thing that I would commend to them along their way is find a Bible-believing church where you move to and connect with them and get your membership there and live out these realities with other uh, people who are following Jesus. Because uh, if God leads us away from community, we believe that being part of a local church is still Vital to your spiritual journey, accountability, and commitment wherever you go. And so we've always, uh, always, when uh, God has located us to different places, found a new church in the community that we lived in. We lived in Wake Forest. We're members of a Baptist congregation there while I was in school. I loved living in Wake Forest. It was a pretty awesome place. We had an awesome church that we were part of there. When we lived in Augusta, we were members of a church in Augusta. I moved to Sylvania to pastor a little congregation. We moved our membership to that little congregation. I just believe it's God's purpose that we be deeply rooted in community and contributing in all the ways that we're talking about here. This is convictional. This is not uh, just like some, some out-of-nowhere thing. These are convictions and ideas that I hold deeply myself. Rick Warren says, the sooner we give up the illusion that a church must be perfect in order to love it, the sooner we get, quit pretending and start admitting we are all imperfect and need grace. This is the beginning of real community. Real community starts when I look around and I go, those people are just like me. You know, They're dealing with the same stuff I'm dealing with. They have the same issues, needs. Maybe, prayerfully, God might use me to bless them in the same way that others have blessed me. But that's what church is in a nutshell. It's a bunch of imperfect people who worship a perfect God, a God who loved us so much he gave his son for us. Commitment is costly. Guess what? So is non-commitment. Churches are gospel outposts. And how refreshing it would be if we obeyed scripture which says, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast or holding out the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. That was what Paul said to other Christians. He's like, I am pouring my life out into these people. That's what he said. And he says, I don't want it to be for nothing. I want these people to, the people that I love and am serving and am trying to disciple also, to reflect Christ in the middle of the dark world that they're a part of. All around us are people who need what we're all about and bringing to them the grace of Christ. And what we are devoted to is of immense ultimate significance. I said this last week. I'll say it again today. Sometimes people who act as if they want absolutely nothing to do with what you are about as a follower of Christ, still they all still need it. I did too. That's where I was. And when I was uh, without Christ, I, I know I bristled and I know I pushed back and I know 
that uh, I was ugly and my spirit toward uh, Christians and stuff, but there was a point in time where God's grace became the very obvious need of my life and his forgiveness became the most important thing. Whereas before I hated the concept of being around Christians or definitely didn't want to be one myself. So we think uh, that person, uh, they're t- totally turned off. I was too. We, but we have the opportunity through our commitment and our faithfulness to be witnesses to Christ, the people who need him, whether they admit it or they don't admit it. And so I think about the words. This is a word I believe that you know God gives to me in thinking about our church. This is what God, I think, has for me. Flourishing flourishing that's the objective if we thought what uh, vision like what's your vision for this church flourishing I want us to flourish when you see something flourishing you know it's healthy right vibrant vital it's needed it's showing off how good something is that's going on that's what I'd like to see is us showing off how good it is that God is doing something inside of each of us that pulls us together flourishing That's the word, abounding. That's Paul used that word, abounding. Not floundering, not retreating, victorious, not victims, relevant, not relics. That's how the world views the church sometimes, a bunch of relics. They belong to a bygone, no longer important time. No, relevant. That's what the church really is. People need us. They need us to be at our best. Essential, necessary, have an impact. I think about the community around us that mostly only comes out here to take pictures under the live oaks or play soccer or come to scouts. You know, far more people do that out here every week than come to church here. That's not how I want them to think about us. I want them to see us as like the main reason this campus is here. They see us and the Things that God is doing in us and among us as having far more importance than why soccer or anything else that happens out here ever. Vital. The community looks at us and says, if that church went away, we'd be in big trouble. That's how I'd like for the community to understand us and see us. Let me ask you as we come to a time of commitment, what's in the way of that in your life this morning? What if we all started pulling together to make these ideas our collective reality? What's in the way of that happening in your life? I want to pray for us, and then we're going to have a time of commitment. You'll be invited to pray. You'll be invited to respond as God is speaking to you. And let's go to him in prayer. Father, we are truly grateful that you've outlined for us what it means to be your people. And even though it is a challenge, God, we realize that through us, you want to give evidence to the world of what grace can do in the life and personality of a human. And so we pray, Father, for cleansing and forgiveness, and we know that we come short. But, God, I pray that you'll pull us together and help us that we can be to our community exactly what they need, even if they don't know what they need. God, help us and use us. And we commit ourselves to you now in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me?